2: Hello, and welcome to an episode in New Books in History. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be interviewing Dr. David Alston about his book, Slaves and Highlanders, Silenced Histories of of Scotland and the Caribbean, which was published by Edinburgh University Press in 2021. Um, The book shows how Scots were involved in every stage of the slave trade. The book focuses on Scottish Highlanders, who engaged in or benefited from these crimes, uh, particularly in the Caribbean islands and Guyana, uh, some reluctantly, but many with enthusiasm and without particular remorse. Um, Their voices are clearly heard in the archives throughout this book, but David Alston also gives voice, not only to these Scots, but also to enslaved Africans and their descendants um, and tells us the stories of their experiences as well. The book uh, does focus on particular colonies, uh, which we're going to get into, and examines how this is a really vital history that we need to engage with in order to more fully understand Scottish history, uh, Scotland's role in the British Empire, um, and what sort of things that that leaves us to reckon with in today's world. So I'm very excited to welcome Dr. David Alston to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Miranda. It's it's a pleasure to be here.
2: So I was wondering if you could start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explain how you came to write this book.
1: Yes, certainly. Uh, I'm a freelance historian. Uh, I live in a small community in the north of Scotland in in the Highlands, a place called Cromarty, which has less than a thousand people in it. Uh, And My interest in history began with an interest in the history of Cromarty. This is about... 25 years ago, uh, I became aware that Cromarty seemed to have a, a, a connection with Guyana on the north coast of South America. Now, this had come up in a couple of ways. One is that I had an account of someone who was at school in Cromarty 200 years ago who sat next to a black pupil in the local school, and the two of them actually in a knife fight. Um, the, the man, the white, uh, pupil was called Hugh Miller. He went on to be a very significant figure in the middle of the century. And he was a, a journalist, a geologist, a collector of folklore, and he wrote about his upbringing in Cromartie. um He'd started off his working life as a stonemason. Um, he'd got lung disease and he'd started carving gravestones because th- that was less punishing work than, than quarry work. I looked at the gravestones he'd carved and two of them were for local people, Cromarty men, who had connections with with Guyana. So I, I began to realise there was there was some local connection. And this this is twenty five years ago, so it's at a point when people were not really recognising any significantly large connection between Scotland, and certainly not between the Highlands, and the slave plantations of the Caribbean and, and South America. So I initially thought, well, this may be a you know something that's of of a local interest but the more i looked, the more i found um and i gradually started building up the information on connections between the highlands and guyana during the era of slavery uh and i moved on to try and take a broader view of connections between the highlands and the wider um, caribbean and came to the conclusion which i which i think other people have have been establishing the same thing that that Scotland's involvement with slavery and the slave trade was immense. It was out of proportion to the number of Scots in Britain. Uh, so that's um, that's how I came to write the book. Um, but th- I mean, the title "Silenced Histories." There, I think it's important to say that their histories that are silenced for, I believe, have been silenced for two reasons. One is that it's that it is it, history of of white scots of highlanders and these histories have been silenced because in many ways they've been inconvenient histories which have not sat comfortably with the the narrative with the story the scots want to tell about themselves so they, they've been silenced for that reason but the the other side of this and it's what you mentioned in your introduction is that i became more and more aware of the significance of the histories of the millions of individuals who suffered from this, expo- this exploitation and I've done what I can to, to recover the voices of at least some of them.
2: And this is something I'm definitely going to be asking you about later in our interview, because both methodologically, but also in the writing, uh, those voices come through in really interesting and surprising ways that because of often challenges in terms of what was written down and what was considered valuable um, and who was considered valuable, Uh, It seems quite unusual to find so much detail in these voices as you've done. Um, But to start off with, help us set the stage, particularly for our audiences who may not be as familiar with Scottish history. Um, The Scottish emigration from Scotland during the time period you're looking at was quite significant in general, but also in terms of how many Scots ended up dominating the population's Of many of these island slave-holding colonies, the proportion of Scots Mm. amongst the colonial population was quite significant. So I was wondering if you could explain a bit to our listeners why Scots were ending up in the Caribbean um, in general from the highlands, but particularly the sort of, as we're going to see later on, this problem of the middling families. Why were there so many Scots in the Caribbean?
1: Well, I think sitting in the background is a a very long-standing tradition of mobility in Scotland. I I think it has been said that Scots were one of the most mobile peoples in Europe, going going back into the fifteen hundreds and the sixteen hundreds. A lot of that tied up with military service. Um, Scotland joins with England in seventeen o seven in the Union of the Parliaments, and at that point, although Scots had been involved in some of the the, the, the plantation economies, um, particularly in Suriname before that, they hadn't had access to what were the English sugar islands of, of the West Indies. But with the Union of 1707, that possibility suddenly opens up to Scots and open up, opens up to Highlanders. And what seems to happen is that Scots there's then a disproportionate involvement of Scots, and I think it is probably a disproportionate involvement of Highland Scots who are responding to that opportunity. Um, So from almost a standing start, um, on one reckoning by about the 1770s, something like a third of the white population of Jamaica um, has some kind of Scottish connection. That's way out of proportion to the Scottish population. Um, what's also happening is that as, uh, as the century goes on new opportunity if you're looking at it from the the, the white scottish perspective new opportunities arise particularly with the acquisition of of the, the the island grenada tobago other islands which were known as the ceded islands which are are gained in 1763 and then at the end of the century um the acquisition in the late 1790s of Trinidad and uh, of Guyana, and it's Guyana that I was particularly interested in. Um, it it's at the it's some it has been called the the last frontier of of that empire. I think it's most people have not a lot of people haven't heard of Guyana, um, and most people haven't heard of the colonies which made up Guyana, which are Dem- well they'll have heard the name Demerara, um, but perhaps don't know where it is. Uh, and one of the other Dutch colonies there, Berbice, most people have not heard of. But it became, on some measures, the most Scottish, the most highland of the the colonies. And that's the place where the whole system of plantation slavery is being pushed to the limits, um, being pushed to the limits in the sense of the the balance of population between the white ruling class and the, the enslaved Africans. Um, and it's also the place where money is being made right up until the end of colonial slavery. So Scots are responding to these opportunities. Um, why, so what, what, why are they responding out of proportion to their population? I think that reflects the economy at home. Um, in the Highlands, traditional society is, is breaking down. The clan system is break, breaking down. So it's it's a period of disruption. Um, That probably also goes along with uh, quite a number of people with with reasonably good education. So there there are opportunities there, a tradition of mobility. People are responding to them. They're they're following the money.
2: And there was quite a lot of money, as you demonstrate. Um, And this took the form of, as you said, the increase in plantations um, and slave-based plantation economies really Getting quite extensive, and you you start this in a lot of ways in Jamaica, um, which, as you demonstrate, holds quite a strong place in the Scottish imagination at this point. Even though Scots end up kind of getting more involved in some of the other colonies, Um, but could you help us understand sort of this these things that you've mentioned? Actually, you demonstrate in the book have quite a link of the Scottish mobility around military service, and then that ends up coming back again in the establishment of plantations. Um, and leads to things like there's apparently an Edinburgh castle in Jamaica. Can you tell us about about these links between the plantation economy, the military background of Scots, and how this leads to terror on a mass scale?
1: I think there's a number of ways in in which that military background is significant. In order to run large sugar plantations in particular, and large, large sugar Large-scale sugar plantations are an invention. Uh, they've been described as as a machine where 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 the moving parts are people, the, the enslaved Africans. Um, there is a huge issue for the white planters of control. You can you can only run that machine if you have absolute control, and that control at the end of the day re- relies on brutality. You need people who are prepared to terrorize other people um and you will find that in from people who have themselves um, been brutalized and I, and I think a lot of military service did that to people so there's a lot of people who have experience of military service who um can then see opportunities for themselves in the caribbean and south america um and they have that that skill of being of of being prepared to terrorise other people. So there's that link. Um, There's also an important link in uh, in Scotland. Scots had a tradition of service in the Dutch army, um, a part of the Dutch army called the Scotch Brigade, which was at some points to six regiments. Um, And that gave Scots um, a link, even, even before the Union in 1707, a link into Dutch colonies. So um, um, so into Suriname, um, it also gave them a link into the colonies, which became Guyana, um, even before Britain took over. So there, there are Scots and there are Highland Scots in Guyana from the 1760s, 1770s. So some of the, some of that is certainly helped by by these military links. But the the the, the, the question you've asked about Edinburgh Castle in Jamaica, uh, what's going on there is there also is something. Something a bit different, but also very interesting. Um, Scots have become extensively involved in in Jamaica, but planters in general, by the the middle of the century, had really become quite um, frightened by resistance from enslaved Africans. There there had been uprisings, so there's there's, that, there's a bit of insecurity there. But also, there there is, Scots have got there after the other settlers, so. Their plantations tend to be on the, the north, in the north of Jamaica, on slightly poorer ground, and that's an area that is suffering attacks from from Spanish privateers. So the, the, there's a sense there that we um, here, you know, here we are as plant, plantation owners in Jamaica, um, we need a bit more protection, and then what they do is to build themselves something from their own tradition. They build what are in effect fortified tower houses, which are common throughout Scotland, particularly the Scottish borders, also common in Ireland, but they belong in the 1600s. And yet a hundred years later, that's what people turn to when they want to build something, a stone building that they can both live in, but can can resist attack. So Edinburgh Castle, um, there are a number of, other castles in Jamaica like that and they're they're, they're almost a time warp um, but, uh, but they they represent that Scottish presence a Scottish presence that's aware of its own traditions and then is using them to, to, to create to enhance their security.
2: I found that particularly fascinating having visited Edinburgh Castle in obviously Edinburgh um, to know that there was one in Jamaica that as you said was quite out of its time as well as place. Um, but I want to pick up this idea of the violence, the brutality, um, and moving on to Grenada. you s- talk about how after 1763, there's quite a lot of trouble, not just from, uh, not just fears of the plantation owners being scared of enslaved Africans, um, but also amongst the settlers, um, particularly along religious lines, but sometimes also national lines, um, and you argue that this society in Grenada at this time was, quote, a society founded on brutal violence towards enslaved Africans and characterised by feuds amongst the settlers. Um, and that this was in a large part due to the influence of Scots and Highlander culture in particular. So given that we sort of mentioned that a bit already, I was wondering if you could explain this link between Highlander culture and sort of these feuds and this brutality that in a lot of senses does sort of seem more medieval than early modern.
1: Well, Grenada had been a French island, um, and so its planter population uh, were white French Catholics, and there was also a significant, um, what we call a free-coloured population, um, who who were also Catholic. Um, And this is at a period in Britain where, you know, there had just been the Jacobite rising in 1745 about trying to put a Catholic monarch back on the throne. So that that Protestant-Catholic distinction is not just a distinction in religion; it's about um, what it is to be British. And very much what it is to be British is to be to be to be Protestant. So the so the, the planters and and the authorities in these islands are, are faced with the challenge of you know how do we now react to a population that's got a significant Catholic part of it? And the, the same was true in, in what was to become Canada. Um, and the hope, I think, initially, and certainly a government policy, was to extend greater toleration to the Catholic population, the French and the, the free-coloured Catholic population of, of Grenada. Uh, and the initial issues were should should they be allowed to vote in elections to the to the to the colony's assembly? Um, now that hope of greater toleration broke down, and it broke down because of the staunch Presbyterian and anti-Catholic sentiments of many of the Scottish planters who were virulently opposed to the idea of Catholic emancipation or even limited Catholic rights. And that that form of feud um, both split the white population, um, it alienated the the free-colored population, and it was part of the the circumstances which that led to were part of what led to the the rebellion, the revolution, the fade-on revolution of, of 1795 in which leading planters, who were were members of the the governing body in the colony, were executed. Um, So so the Scottish presidents and the Scottish feuds, which were imported to to the island, helped to fuel the discontent which made that revolution possible.
2: So I want to stay on that revolution for a second, because I was quite interested in your discussion of it as more significant than it's probably often remembered as. Um, So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about what sort of happened and why you sound like you would argue from the book that uh, we should be paying more attention to this revolution in our understanding of this time period.
1: Yes, I'm very much relying on, on the work of other scholars here. Um, and there has been quite a lot of work done recently, um, showing just the, scale, the the scale of the uprising, the the impact. I mean, the, the fact that you know there were, there were there were executions of the of the leaders of the the white leaders in the colony, um, and it really shook. Um, you know, I think it meant that it went from a place where people felt this and this was a place where it was making money. I mean, this is and so so the making money this is a place people are attracted to it's been it's been and it has it has was being held up as as a place where at least from the point of view of people refer, investing from britain it've been portrayed to them as a place where you could have a harmonious society where people could make money um i mean it's quite misleading an entirely misleading picture, where you had happy enslaved Africans who, who were well treated. Um, so there, there was a lot of spin going on, and suddenly this is shattered by by a significant rev- revolutionary movement because it it is both an uprising of the enslaved ag- against the enslavers, and it uh, involves free people who are inspired by ideas of the French of um, of, of the French Revolution. So it really does shake to the core the notion of a quite colonial society that is that is that is part of a wider British society, um, and it, it 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 the economy is disrupted and it takes a number of decades for the the economy to, to get back to the point where it was. Um, so it it has it, it it had a big big impact and um, we. Probably should be more aware of it, but I, but I think I think that's general. That's true of an awful lot, an awful lot of Caribbean history. That there, there are big events which um, I, I think we seem to have forgotten, and quite a number of uprisings that we we know very little about when, when we look at British history.
2: And so, on the point of the economy, on the idea of making money, and that being a really captivating idea. Um, at the beginning of the book this you talk about kind of this idea of Jamaica and that's something that draws out Scots uh, to try and sort of make it themselves even if as we've already discussed many of them don't end up in Jamaica and in fact Scots uh, are represented in quite a number of the colonies in this area but I was particularly interested to see that you demonstrate in the book that even Scots who never left Scotland were still quite heavily involved in slave based economics through a number of different industries, um, particularly cloth production, fishing, and banking, could you tell us a little bit about sort of the scale and involvement of these industries for Scots who maybe never left the country?
1: Yes, certainly. I, uh, I, th- there are, as we've been saying, a significant number of Scots who do go to the Caribbean, but they, they tend to be people with a with a little bit of money, with an education, with a trade. Um, but i think it's important to to see how the per, per, the the way in which the the plantation based economies permeate britain permeate scotland and i think the two very clear examples of that are the production of linen cloth in scotland uh, this was a kind of cloth that was called uh, Osnaburgs after after Osnabrück in Germany, a coarse linen cloth, and the principal export market for that was the Caribbean because it was also called slave cloth. It was it was used to, to, as, as clothing for enslaved people. Uh, after the Jacobite Rising of seventeen forty five, one of the principal policies of government after that was to integrate. The economy of the Highlands into the the rest of the country, so so that if, if the economy was integrated, if people depended for their livelihood on on the rest of the country, it was far less likely to be to be future rebellions. So that that, that was the thought. Um, what was promoted, both well pr- with government backing, but but in other ways, well, was the spinning of linen yarn. Um, it It wasn 't flax that was being grown in Scotland; it was being imported from the Baltic. It was being shipped uh, to the north of Scotland to principally to cromarty where i where I live and it was then being distributed for women to spin in households throughout the north uh, and there was There was a technological innovation because this is the point at which spinning wheels are introduced uh, so that traditional image of the the Highland croft with a spinning wheel at the door, uh, has its origins in the promotion of spinning linen yarn to be shipped to be spun in the Highlands, taken south and woven into slave cloth. Uh, And that I think is probably as clear an example as there is of of the way in which, um, because it's in the Caribbean that money is being made, that's where the export market is. Uh, as it's not just about importing sugar and cotton and coffee from the, from the Caribbean. It's about shipping out all the things that you need to, to run that economy. Uh, so so that's, that's a clear example. Um, the other example is that to keep people alive, you, you need to provide them with a minimal amount of protein and salt fish was the, the principal protein which was being provided to the enslaved population throughout the Caribbean. A uh, significant amount of that was coming from Newfoundland, but there's also a significant export trade from Scotland in salt herring, and in, in other salt fish as well. Um, so the, there, so other communities um, in Scotland on the east and west coasts are, are benefiting from that um and when you you we get to the emancipation of slaves in the 1830s that market is lost and there are there are protests um people lobby parliament right to, to their, their mp um complaining that the 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 west indian market has been lost and and it's it's, it's creating economic hardship so these 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 are two ways in which very um which even some of the poorest people in in the highlands, where their livelihoods had come to depend uh, on exports to the Caribbean. Uh, another example, though, that um, probably affects best, slightly better off people is the whole development of the, the financial sector. Um, slave economies relied on credit um, and extensive networks of credit and financial instruments that... That allowed these the, these networks of credit to operate, quite sophisticated financial in, instruments, and so the the, the development of, of banking systems, um, was, and and I should say of accounting systems, were were um, were, were two things which came out of of the plantation economies. Um, and the, the 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 accounting systems it, it, it was part of. Of the control of the plantations, and and the word control is originally an accounting term, uh, and and that and these accounting systems were because um, people in Scotland part of the Scottish Enlightenment. The development of accounting was part of the Scottish Enlightenment, and the the standard handbooks for running plantations, for running the accounts, were were Scottish and went through edition after edition. Um, and you know, So clearly these accounting systems, the banking systems, were, were also things which developed within Britain, but which were benefiting from skills that had been honed in the Caribbean and South America.
2: And so to stay with the idea of the more well-off, in addition to personally being surprised by the extent to which Scottish populations in Scotland were involved in the slave-based economy, Um, I was also interested by one of your uh, examples that you discuss how the wealth derived from slavery financed the majority of changes in land ownership from the period of 1726 to 1929, so essentially 200 years. Can you please give us a few brief examples the way that you have of the lower end of the economy about how this wealth from slavery enabled land ownership at the top of the economic pyramid?
1: Well, um, again, I'm re- relying very much on the work of other scholars here, and there's some very good recent work being done, um, look, looking at land transfers in the Highlands, in in the latter part of that period, really. And, and one of the the impacts of abolition was that slave holders were compensated for the loss of what they regarded as their property that is the, the enslaved people who were now free so they they went from having an an investment in in their minds the ownership of slaves to being cash rich because because they they got the money uh, and that enabled large land purchases it was, all sorts of other ways of investing money. But so after 1833-34, um a lot of land try, um, changes hands in the highlands and that's also partly because owning owning land in the highlands is is beginning to become fashionable. There's there's interest in the highlands. So it's partly people um buying for economic reasons and hoping to develop that land. But I think there's also the beginnings of that idea of um you know becoming a highland landed proprietor, a highland gentleman uh the, a very clear example of this, I think it's a very telling example, is the island of Rassi off the, the west the west coast of Scotland. And Rassi has become, all, I think it's, it's right here to use the word iconic, of the Highland Clearances, in the sense that, that it is an instance through which we see a larger reality. And it's become iconic because of the poetry of the Gallic poet Sorley Maclean, and his poem Hallig, which is about the clearance of the community in, in Rassi, Halig. Uh, and a lot of people who think about Highland clearances um, would either think about the Sutherland clearances or or Sorley McLean's Macla- Sorley poem Halig. Um, Halig was cleared of its people. Uh, one of the things which I, I established was that that clearance was Carried out it was always known it was carried out by somebody called George Rainey, but I think what had been lost was the fact that George Rainey was a Highlander himself um, he was a, a son of the minister in a minister in Southern, but he had spent more than thirty years of his life in Guyana. He had made his money through plantation ownership and particularly through being involved in one of the large merchant houses which, which grew in Guyana and was well, was a, still a very powerful force at the end of colonial slavery. So he is somebody who had direct experience of running a plantation. If he didn't hold the whip, then he gave the orders to those who did. And 30 years later, 40 years later, he's, he's owning a, an island and he clears it of its people. And he does that with a a callousness and a a brutality, which is such that you can't help but see a a relationship between the way in which he's worked in Guyana and the way in which he implements his policies in Rassi.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: I think you said it precisely. You can't help but see the links, um, that was quite evident in reading the book. Um. But I want to move now to thinking about from thinking about the enslavers to thinking about the enslaved, um, which, as I mentioned in the introduction, your book uh, includes both entire sections discussing the experiences of the enslaved um, Africans, but also um, interspersed throughout the book, the way that you discuss the Highlanders. So I was wondering, given the challenges that including this kind of material often poses for researchers, you could start us off on this section by Explaining sort of how did you manage to include these? How what archives, methods, discoveries, etc., helped make it possible to achieve this goal of giving voice to the people who were enslaved.
1: It it's been the part of writing this book, which I've come to feel is is the most important part, and which I think it's the direction that my work is going in at the moment. It is challenging. Um, I think I was lucky in the sense that it was Guyana I became interested in, and through some accidents of history, the records which survive from the period of slavery in Guyana are records which do give voice to enslaved people now there this is because in um there was a system where slaves could complain now that sounds un unlikely, but it was part of the, the Dutch system and it was maintained by the British. Um, so enslaved people who felt that they had been wrongly treated could bring a complaint to an official um, and that was examined. Now doing that meant taking significant risks because you know, obviously the plantation owner or the or the manager knew you were making that complaint and and you risked retribution and and there was retribution in very very many cases so but the fact that people did the the fact that people did complain shows how important the issues were to them uh, I've relied very much on the, the work of of Randy Brown um, who's published a book called surviving slavery in in the British Caribbean, which uses the, these records. And I've done something similar. I've also tried to, to look, at, look at earlier records. You've always got to be careful with them because what's recorded is recorded by the, the white authorities in the colony. But nevertheless, um, you can, with care, hear something at least of the voice of the enslaved. Um, and also, there, there, I think a key to being able to do this kind of work are records which are being digitized and made freely available, and I really want to praise the National Archives of the Netherlands, who have worked with the National Archives of Guyana to to digitize and make freely available everything in the in the archives in Guyana up to eighteen fifteen, which they call the Dutch period, because that's after that it was transferred to uh, um, to formally transferred to britain and there's, there's a there's there's a lot there um where again with care um it's always it's never go, it's never going to be written by um by the enslaved but they are sometimes reporting the words of of enslaved people um uh i just i just give you a very very quick example one of the things i've become interested in is um it, it's clear that in the early 1800s um he, he, here's a he, here's a phrase from these records that comes from an enslaved person in 1808 um and this is the year after um the abolition of the transatlantic african slave trade um sorry it's not it's it's a little bit later it's 1813 um so 6 years later It's an enslaved man called Pompey who's on a plantation called Washington which belongs to a highland Scot. And Pompey says, this is Christmas 1813, no new people come from Africa. Now, I had never thought of the end of the colonial, the the, the transatlantic slave trade from that perspective of the enslaved, that it's suddenly a moment of isolation. There isn't no no more people are coming. And what, what Pompey then says, so we must look after ourselves and do that story, and look after ourselves, other things he says and, and lots of other evidence explains that that means they have to gather together in what they call their nations. Now, these are not African ethnic identities. They're, these are people who have been gathered together from a a hugely diverse group of, of of African peoples. They're having to create their own ethnicities, um, but that you know, and that's what they need in order to to survive is is to create new identities. Um, so they must they must look after themselves in in what they call their nations, and they must do their story. And for doing doing the story is, you must care for the sick. You must bury the dead properly with with proper rights um you must settle your own disputes and what it actually means as well it turns out and is you must plan to rise up against the enslavers so, so, so that is big you know it, it's all indirect but it's you are beginning to get a sense of of that of the terrible conditions but also of the of the creativity, of of creating new identities, of finding ways to resist, of finding ways to survive.
2: And that came up a number of times throughout the histories of the individuals that you were able to introduce us to in the book, Um, particularly around this idea that you mentioned earlier of the, quote, free coloured population, right? People who had previously been enslaved but then had gained their freedom in some way. Um, and particularly I was interested in the stories of a number of the women Mm. um, and how they navigated a world that was challenging from a race point of view but also obviously from a gendered point of view so I was wondering as you've just introduced us to one of the figures that turns up in the book um, might you have one or two other figures you can briefly introduce us to
1: yes certainly and I I should explain that I I use the term free colored I mean we, we would now say you know you know, free person of color, and and and, and a free colored woman can sound because um, if you use that phrase, it can offend. But it it was it was an important phrase to the women themselves because they wanted to distinguish themselves from free blacks and from enslaved people. Um, so there there is a period. Um, these these are. I'll talk about Guyana because it's the place I know best, but the same would be true of other places. Um, these are colonies with very few white women um, and young, a lot of young white men. Sexual abuse is endemic in the system of, of slavery. There, there, there is sexual abuse of, of enslaved women. But there is also... An opportunity for free women of colour, free coloured women, quite a number of whom have moved to Guyana because it's a growing developing colony from, from Barbados, and who enter into relationships um, with white men there, um, and who also uh, bring about engineer relationships between their daughters and, and white women, and who, some of whom are remarkably powerful. Um, they're certainly enterprising. Um, and they, there is a moment where they are a very powerful force in the colony. The the one the the, the woman in Guyana who is best known as somebody called, um, uh, well, she would she would have insisted on in being called Mrs. Thomas. She was Dorothy Thomas. Um, when people weren't listening, she was called Doll Thomas. Uh, Doll Thomas was, she she was the the large she was a slave owner herself she was the largest free colored sorry the largest free colored woman who was a slave owner um and uh, a businesswoman uh she um there was a, a tax had been placed on free colored women uh, free colored men didn't pay the tax because they had to serve in the militia in the 1820s Dole Thomas successfully had that tax removed, and she did that by travelling to London. Uh, when she got back, um, we know she was successful because the other free coloured women um, got together to buy her uh, a silver salver inscribed with their thanks to her for having the tax removed. So we know she was successful. And the story which she put about, or which which spread, was that in London she'd hired um, a coach with six horses and liveried footmen, and she'd had herself driven to St James's Palace, where she emerged dressed in a turban studded with diamonds, with an ostrich feather, a a necklace of gold doubloons, and a skirt made of five-pound notes of the Bank of Guyana sewn together, Uh, and she demanded to see the Foreign Secretary. Now, I mean, whatever happened, she she made her mark in London, and was successful in having that tax removed. She was also at a different point in Glasgow. She had her children and grandchildren educated in Scotland. Um, her, her her daughters were in relationships with with Scots. Um, so she is she's she is probably the, the outstanding example, but by no means the only example of these, what what other scholars have called enterprising women in this period in the the Caribbean?
2: I would, having read the book, definitely agree that that was definitely one of the standout examples, but also there were many of them. Mm. Um, And so readers interested in more of those um, snippets of history, snippets of biography, um, should investigate the full book because there were quite a number of captivating ones. But this idea of children of colour in Scotland, in England, in Britain, um, is to a large degree inevitable when we're talking about decades of slavery um, and a colonial empire with travel back and forth. Um, And yet, as you demonstrate in the book, there were many, especially in the upper classes of British society, that were a bit stunned in many ways um, by these children of colour when they were in Britain um and you you discussed them having quote an influence beyond their numbers uh, so can you explain a bit sort of what this impact was and why it was so shocking
1: yes um well the i mean I th- important i think to say first i mean the, the 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 children of color who end up back here are are a tiny minority of the children who are born to white fathers in in the caribbean but some are freed and some of those who are freed are sent back to to Britain for education um, i think they've got an impact beyond their, their numbers because whatever that happens the, the the family is suddenly faced with the fact that they have a they have a black relation <laughs> within the family um uh, and they're, they're not expecting it quite quite often these children you know simply appear um, somebody comes off a comes off a ship, and th- there are what we would have called coloured children. Um, so families have to negotiate; they have, they have to work out what you know, what they're going to do, what part do they have within the family. Um, there's a very good book I mean, published quite a while ago now, called A Private Empire* by Stephen Foster, who looked at the MacPherson family from Blairgowrie, where. Who sons were in Berbice and exactly that this happened. Um, the children come back. Um, the 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 father writes a letter to his son saying you should leave them in Glad or Beguric, I think, where the ship was was docking. Uh, the son doesn't get the letter, so the children end up back at the, at the house um, to the shock of his mother. Um, his mother at first can only refer to them as the Midnight Shades. Sorry, well, the, the moonlight shades, um, you know, but gradually comes to 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 be reconciled to the fact that they they are her grandchildren. Um, she won't let them take the family name. Uh, her son is called William, so they get the surname Williams, because they are Williams. Um, one of the one of the girls does stay and looks after her grandmother, but the the. Boys end up in Australia, and I've found you know, very often there isn't a comfortable future for the children of mixed race unless they can, if they can pass as white, that's fine. Um, they, they, but even then, uh, you know, they, it may be easier for them to find a future in 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 the colonies in in, in India. Um, there is there's an interesting example from another family from Jamaica where the children come back. Um, the son whose um, name is Peter Grant is being educated in Aberdeen he's been cared for by the principal of Aberdeen University and the principal writes to his father basically saying he's going to be okay because his skin is lighted off and he doesn't have curly hair so he's he's he's, he's going to pass as white but actually Peter, Peter Grant ends up in India um, with a successful military career um, so you, you can find these examples of what people at the time would have, would have regarded as successful integration. But for lots, they they stood out. And I think during the 1820s, the 1830s and, and onwards, racial prejudice is becoming more systematic. Um, and there isn't a comfortable future for, for them. So I think many leave. Um, and it's I, I, I found quite remarkably, looking in the early 1800s, at Inverness Royal Academy, um, almost one in nine of the pupils there in 1804 were from the Caribbean. Now, I don't know how many of them were of mixed race, but a considerable number certainly were. Um, and yet, if you know, if you moved on half a century, you'd have almost no black pupils in the academy. So it's it, so people then I think forgot about this aspect of our history. The, the, the presence of of black children in families and in our communities,
2: and I think that goes back to what you're saying at the beginning of this interview that there is a lot of this history, um, and yet it's more that we've forgotten it, and in many cases, purposely not told these stories. That is why it can be so surprising today. Um, as you said, it's it's uncomfortable. It doesn't sit with a lot of the myths and the narratives that we have now, um, particularly in terms of sort of Scottish innovation and the Scottish Mm. role in the Enlightenment um, and these sorts of things, which you discuss explicitly in the last section of your book, which you title Reckonings. Um, And as you discuss, it's not simple what that means. It's not simple, the words restitution, reparations. Um, There are a lot of complexities around that idea But you highlight in particular the role of civic institutions in addition to public policies um, and how we approach our shared histories and um, remember them and which things we choose to highlight, Um, particularly in terms of Scottish innovation. There was quite a distinct lack that was interesting that you highlighted. So I was wondering if you could, obviously this is a very tricky question, um, but briefly summarise for us um, what your research and investigation into this complicated but in a lot of ways visible as soon as you start to look history um, how should we be dealing with that today um, and how should our institutions be thinking about it as part of Scotland's history
1: well I uh, um, I think there, there is a, an approach which says it's up to historians to do the history to see what happened to get that right and then it's up to in some sense others to answer the question what are the implications of this um I don't find that a tenable position i mean i don't think nobody is just an historian we're citizens I certainly believe i would argue i hope convincingly but I, I think these are fun these are really matters of philosophy of ethics i think we have responsibilities we have we have moral burdens from the past and I think the clearest way to to express that is if we want to take pride in our past and, and lots and we do we've also got to accept the the shame that goes along with the the actions about which we should be ashamed and this isn't something that we're detached from we we are part of communities we are part of nations we're part of states um, and I think fundamentally these are communal responsibilities I don't think you know 200 nearly 200 Years on, this is about individuals and individual families, um, descendants of individual families. Although you know, people who are descendants of individual families who made who made money in slavery you know, may want to address that, may want to explore that. But but the fundamental question is is one is the question: How do we as as Scots or as Britons? Um, Reckon with 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 our history and how do we what are the responsibilities that arise from that? So so I, I think it's fundamentally a communal responsibility, but I, th- I think there are, there are responsibilities on our civic institutions. Um, I think in I, and there are some great examples of of, of institutions who are responding to that. I think Glasgow University is an outstanding example of you know having commissioned a report on how it benefited and and instituted a, a program of reparation. Um, every university should be doing that um, but I think we I mean so much of the history of people in the Caribbean the history of their ancestors are held in archives in this country I, I was explaining earlier on what the National Archives of the Netherlands had done um to our shame I think Britain has done very little and I think it ought to be you know, for the community of academic historians i think a priority ought to be to be pressuring government whether that's british government or scottish government to place a duty on our archives on our national galleries to make what they have freely available online so that the sources for the history of the descendants of enslaved africans are are available and, and I would, I mean, it, it isn't just enslaved Africans, it's also indentured Indian labourers who were who were brought to, to the Caribbean in, in, in their millions. Um, I think part of, there, there's, I suppose, a sort of intellectual reparation that needs to be done in making the sources for the history available.
2: I think that's a really, that's often a piece that's missing um, from the discussion. So thank you for bringing that up, um, particularly given how important Archival work is demonstrated to be in your book, um, and so as you mentioned at the beginning, this is something you've been working on for quite a while, um, and in many ways was prompted by that discovery of your own area and a history that you weren't necessarily aware of, that was just in the surrounding community that had hadn't been brought out. Um, so, my traditional second-to-last question, therefore, is: Can you tell us one of the most surprising things you discovered in the process of writing this book? Big, small included in the book or not. Um, But I think it's always interesting to see what is surprising to the person who is closest to the work.
1: Um, There's lots that shocks me. There's lots that surprises me. I think the one that is running in my mind at the moment is an enslaved African who's given the name Archie, who I think is probably brought in the 1790s by Dutch slave traders to Berbice, becomes and is enslaved on a plantation belonging to James Fraser of Belladrum. Uh, Belladrum is in the Highlands and some of the listeners may know it from the Belladrum Music Festival. Um, the, um, Archie, Archie comes to, to Britain, he comes to Scotland, and I now know that he in, in 18, 1810, 1811, he, he was at Belladrum in the Highlands. Um Archie has a Archie goes back with James Fraser to, to, to Guyana to Berbice. And Archie has another life. Archie is the king of the Coromantes Car- on the west coast of Berbice and he's involved in plotting an uprising. Um a a, a little-studied uprising in, in in 1814. And yet when he's when he's caught and um he's tried and he's condemned and six of the other leaders are brutally executed um Archie isn't executed because the, the the verdict wasn't majority a majority wasn't a wasn't a unanimous verdict it was a majority verdict he's protected by the man who claimed to own him james fraser um and instead he's flogged and he's to be sent out of the colony um, into exile and James Fraser initially proposes that he's exiled to Scotland Um, the the court won't accept that I think he ends up in Grenada but there are so many things going on there Um, an African born man who's in Guyana, who's in Scotland he's also in Liverpool and in London goes back, organises an uprising and yet has Yet his yet the man who claims to own him has invested so much in, in in what he must perceive as a relationship that he wants to preserve that and wants and what archie to end up back in the highlands i I find that sort of mind blowing in the sense, i suppose in the true sense that it that i that I find it difficult to comprehend everything that's going on there
2: i I think that you've summed it up quite accurately there's a lot going on there um and a lot that could be investigated and unpacked, which leads me beautifully to my next question, my final question, um, which is, and this always seems a bit mean, given that your book was only published last year and was a massive effort. Um, but what are you working on now or next?
1: Um, well, obviously, I finished writing the book a bit before it was published, so I've had I've had have had a bit of time to think about where I'm going next. And um, in the yeah, in the immediate future, what what I'm looking at is. The history of um, maroons—those um, those enslaved people who escaped—and at least for some time were able to live free in in the forests of, of Guyana. So maroons and the in Guyana um, and the the close connection between that and organisation on the plantations in Guyana um, in in African nations. And I I think there's something. Um, going something going on there, which is different. What is hap- than happened with Maroons in in Jamaica and and Suriname, where where Maroons survive today. They they didn't survive in in Guyana. But I I think it's something that tells us quite a lot about um, about what's going on in in that period where there's been a sudden. An, an enormous influx of of Africans. Uh, so it's it's that interaction between the the, the, the white slave owners, many of whom are Scots, the enslaved Africans, their African heritage, but this this this, this striving for freedom through uprising or through um, through escape.
2: I think that will be fascinating. Um, so I hope to read that research when it comes becomes available. Um, And I think there's a lot that can be investigated there. So I'm certainly interested in learning more. Um, Thank you very much for your time with this interview and for sharing the work that you've spent so much time and effort on uh, with the rest of the world. I know that I certainly learned a lot from it. um, And hopefully our readers and our listeners, apologies, uh, learned from this interview as well. If you are interested in going from being a listener to a reader of the book, Reminder, it's titled Slaves and Highlanders, Silenced Histories of Scotland and the Caribbean, and was published by Edinburgh University Press in 2021. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us, Dr David Alston.
1: Thank you very much, Miranda, for having the discussion with me.